Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, David Bailey, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Sequorum and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Sequorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N, specifically as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. As Halloween approaches this month, we celebrate the holiday and our one-year anniversary with Roger Selesny's A Night in the Lonesome October. We're here to help you serve this delectable and timely offering at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen, with me tonight are David. Hey, everybody. And Bob. Hey, guys. So, synopsis guy, hit us. A night in the lonesome October is narrated from the point of view of Snuff, a dog who is Jack the Ripper's companion. The story reveals that once every few decades when the moon is full on the night of Halloween, the fabric of reality thins and doors may be opened between this world and the realm of the Great Old Ones. When these conditions are right, men and women with occult knowledge may gather at a specific ritual site to hold the doors closed or to help fling them open. Should the closers win, then the world will remain as it is until the next turning. But should the opener succeed, then the great old ones will come to Earth to remake the world in their own image, enslaving or slaughtering the human race in the process. The openers have never yet won. These meetings are often referred to as the game, or the great game by the participants, who try to keep the goings-on secret from the mundane population. Each player has a familiar, an animal companion with near-human intelligence that helps complete the numerous preparations for the ritual. The majority of the story describes the interactions and discussions of these animals, all from Snuff's point of view. Throughout the book, the players slowly take sides, form alliances, make deals, oppose one another, and even kill off their enemies. The plot accelerates until the night of October 31st, when the ritual takes place and the fate of the world is decided. Ooh. Very nice. Spooky. God, I love this book. <laughs> yeah, this is probably in my top three reads since we started the podcast. I really dug it. Awesome. I love the fact that most of the story was told from the perspective of the various players' familiars. I thought that was really cool. Zelazny found a really cool way to bring all of my favorite old classic monsters. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, and it was kind of like took me back to being, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And Were you picturing out. like the universal monsters too, the classic? Yes, totally. I totally kind of did a lot of reminiscing. Even like going to the, the local quick mart and buying packs of famous monsters cards with that dried up piece of bubble gum that used to come with them. I mean, I thought that was just so cool. The but... bubble board. <laughs> <laughs> 
bubble board. But I think Zelazny really breathed an interesting new life into him. He, um, first off, it was really cool that he found a way to bring all these historic characters into one story. And uh, I definitely dug the Lovecraft influences, you know, with the great old ones coming in. Are we going to keep them out? I thought that was really yeah, it's, just, it's like it takes everything that you think's cool and he throws it into a story and it works really well. Yeah, uh, and even, it stays cool. It does. Yeah. There's a part where Snuff and Greymop, who is one of the players familiar as a cat, uh, they take a trip to the Dreamlands, and I just thought that was so awesome to have Greymock the cat give the tour to Snuff the dog. You know, all huh. these uh, crazy places. Uh, it really kind of charged up my imagination reading through uh, especially the dreamland portion i thought it was really neat i think the writing was real fluid and i loved zelazny's style especially when it came to describing things even just basic ordinary things i thought you know it was you know he just kind of breathed life into stuff and i thought that was really cool yeah I, i'm with you it was a really good book and i enjoyed it but i'd like to apologize to our listeners up front because i think i personally would have gotten a lot more out of this if i hadn't been told ahead of time like by the synopsis that the jack in question was jack the ripper <laughs> i didn't want to say anything but i didn't know that was jack the ripper guys i mean i'm sorry i, I must have missed that I, because i'm such a jack the ripper nut to me it's real obvious the whole time this whole thing takes place during jack the ripper's killings and it's on the back of the book and i think coming at it from your point of view then the way that jack unfolds could have made for an awesome detective style read on the sherlockian note i have to give this book props for its treatment of quote unquote the detective oh yeah and the nod to the Strand magazine. I also think it's kind of a shame that Zelazny couldn't follow this up with a prequel to give us more of Snuff's history, because so many things were alluded to, you know, his time in Ireland, or his and Jack's time in Egypt, or the number of times he was with Jack for the game previously. But, you know, all in all, I enjoyed the way this was written, with each chapter being one day, and each chapter getting progressively longer, building upon the findings of the animal familiars. I think my favorite part of it, though, was the way the intrigue built, but there was rarely any real animosity between the animals themselves, as opposed to the way some of the two-legged players acted. Yeah, the the animals, especially at the beginning, before everybody knows who's an opener and who's a closer, and the way they have sort of that uneasy alliance of helping each other, but trying not to give away too much information. Well, makes you know, it besides dropping the cat in a well once. Well, but that's that's not the beginning. They kind of build that as things get nastier when, you know, people are trying to take out other people's familiars, things certainly change. But I really love the turns of language and all the, the casual references to things, whether it's the great detective or the count, rather than coming out and saying, you know, Dracula or Sherlock Holmes. But that also makes sense from the narrator's point of view, because Snuff doesn't know who Sherlock Holmes is, but he may have heard that it is a great detective. Good point, yeah. I got a kick out of Greymalk, because that draws from the term Greymalkin, which is a term for a witch's familiar, which Greymalk is. Okay, yeah, that's clever. And, I mean, this was, of all the pieces Zelazny wrote, he had stated this was one of his favorites, and he died shortly after he wrote this, so I believe this was his last book. 
Huh. Like David said, I love the Lovecraftian aspects, you know, the great old ones, the dreamlands, the nightmarish beasts held in the attic. Oh, yeah. I mean, this whole story just screams curl up on a chilly autumn night with the lights low and give it a read. There's a part, I have to quote it, because for me, it captures the, you've crossed the wrong man vibe, and it reminds us that the heroes of the book aren't necessarily heroes in the traditional sense. I could see it now, like a black tornado surrounding Jack, settling inward. If it entered him completely, he would no longer be in control of his actions. I've come for my dog, he said. That's him on your table. He moved forward. No, you don't, laddie, said the beefy man. This is a special job for a special client. I'll be taking him and leaving now. The beefy man raised his scalpel and moved around the table. This can do amazing things to a man's face, pretty boy, he said. The others picked up scalpels also. I'd guess you've never met a man who really knows how to cut, the beefy one said, advancing now. It was into him, and that funny light came into his eyes, and his hand came out of his pocket and captured starlight traced the runes on the sides of his blade. Well met, Jack said then, through the teeth of his grin, and he continued to walk straight ahead. To me, that moment Yeah, just... that, that was a little chilling. You're reading the story, I know it's Jack the Ripper. He's such a likable guy. <laughs> he's one of the nicest ones there, yeah. <laughs> and so there's that moment, and you start seeing that he's a likable guy, but like so many of them carrying these magic items and artifacts, that it's got hooks into him, and it changes things. It really makes you think, too, because the way certain people are portrayed, like the vicar ends up being one of the most cold-hearted, devious creatures in the story. Oh, yeah. But there is, for me, there's one there's one kind of downside to the story, and that is that the entire book is literally a shaggy dog joke told by a shaggy dog. So it's a shaggy dog, shaggy dog joke. <laughs> and that makes me wince every time I get to the last line of the book. I'm, I'm loving it. I get to that last line. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we won't give it away on air, but uh, it, we can regale each other with it afterward, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's no, <laughs> there's certainly no need to give it away. <laughs> oh, I think, God, um, no. Do you guys think this would be something like for the month of October to read to your kids that aren't, of course, too young? But I think I don't know with uh, the familiars. I think that uh, kids would actually like this book a lot too. Oh, I yeah. think this is a book you could read to your kids. I think it's a book you could read to your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse. Yeah, it's I don't just... think it's too dark. Yeah. yeah, it definitely has some intrigue to it and a little bit of morality. You know, and constantly they're meeting with each other and they're talking and they're finally figuring out who's on which side and they talk to people and they try to get the other ones to cross over to the other side or the way the entire climactic scene plays out i think is absolutely brilliant yeah and it's filled with twists and turns you just don't see everything coming and that's really nice yes it it's kind of a nice change because everything is told from the dog's point of view you don't know everything that's going on as opposed to most books that are told from an omniscient point of view yeah and because of all the plotting and as the book's progressing you're not really sure who's on what side no matter how they behave and on the flip side it's also not too dumbed down 
You know, as I mentioned before, Snuff has been around for quite some time. He's not a stupid dog. He doesn't refer to things in a childish manner. Oh no, not at all. He's kind of world weary. You can tell that he's he's, he's a been little at jaded. <laughs> yeah, he's more than just a little jaded when he talks about the things up in the attic and the creatures in the trunk and in the mirror and all of the other weird things that, as it turns out, really do serve a purpose in the story. But it's just all of these monsters kept in the attic. It's just, it's a a lot of fun that way. And there is so much you can stat and bring to the table in this story. You don't say. For instance, yeah. (laughs) Well, for instance, all the familiars, Grey Milk the Cat, Snuff the Dog, Quicklime, Bubo the Rat. I mean, there's all these different animals. You could stat any one of those. Yeah. Or all of them. You could stat the key players. I mean, come on. It gives you a chance to stat Dracula and Frankenstein and Larry Talbot, the Wolfman. How anybody could pass that up (laughs) willingly in the month of October, I don't know. And then there's all sorts of magic items meant to help with the ritual and stuff like that. What do you have, David? Well, first off, you know, there may be a lot of listeners who have children who haven't seen any of these classic black and white movies, you know? So it might make a a cool month to say, hey, kids, let's uh, watch some some things that used to scare mom and dad back when they were young and then lead into maybe spending the last part of the month reading this book. You could really do a lot, I think. I don't know, just like I said, it opened a lot of doors that, you know, I haven't given a lot of thought to I think in a long time but I think it definitely would make for a great opportunity if you wanted to revisit the classic werewolf or vampire and put a Zelazny reskin or a twist on it well that, true. that's just the thing those aren't in the classic DCC bestiary oh. he even says at the beginning Goodman said we're not going to give you a vampire that's too run of the mill so we're going to make these a little bit more unique but I think I think Transylvanian Adventures included stats for some of those. Well, even if you don't deal reskin, I mean, going by what Joseph wants everyone to do with their adventures when you're putting creatures in it, I don't think he wants any two creatures to be the same. Exactly. If you look at vampire lore versus vampires in every single game system, I've not seen one vampire in a single RPG that can be injured and held at bay with roses, but that's in the old vampire lore. Yeah. So you can still make things very traditional and still out of the norm. Pull it from the legends of yore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of tapped on a vein with me to where you could actually come up with your own adventure and run these creatures as pawns in a much greater struggle so that, you know, maybe they... Yeah, if they work alongside the oh, players and, it. you know, maybe intrinsically they're evil, but to serve the greater purpose, you got to work with this lycanthrope or this vampire, you know, not knowing at the end if you're going to have the beast at your throat or maybe you'll end up with a very powerful entity that owes you a favor one day. So with the players playing the dog and the cat yeah. and the squirrel I, know, I, just, and I thought it was a really cool concept, you know, oh, to that's where awesome. most adventurers, there's good and there's bad. But what if you got to work with good, you know? And what if along the lines you end up kind of building a little bit of a rapport with them so that at the end you don't get your face eaten off, but instead you kind of have a... Yeah. There's that moment, I like the world the way yeah, it is. exactly. And I totally dig that because it really does read as the humans, and I'll use that term <laughs> as a generality, the two-leggeds really do feel like NPCs. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you on that. That's awesome. That, that, okay, that, that's your next project. Yeah. <laughs> and you're on a roll. What else you got for us, dude? <laughs> no kidding. Get some things that you, if you wanted to do some statting, there are a lot of occult items that were in there, like Jack's dagger. Yeah, oh, yeah. Jack's dagger, knife. Right? 
the vicar actually had acquired some items. There was a blood bowl or a bowl with a skull in it, I believe, and some icon. Yeah, yeah. there's the icon of Alhazred. Yeah, there was a lot of really neat stuff. Yeah. And it wasn't that they all did certain things. They just added certain bits of power to the end ritual. And someone had power to whomever used them. Others were specifically for opening or for closing. Right. Yeah. I also think it'd be fun to do, like, Jack's everyday wand, the one that he used when he was oh, yeah. transferring the things from one mirror into another. It'd be a lot of fun to flesh out the gypsies who came into town later to provide the Count with protection. Mm-hmm. I really dug that shadow spell, using nails and a sickle oh, to yeah, separate the, the shadow from the animal. And, you know, those items, the tools of the game, Snuff mentions that if those tools are used recreationally, it was known that repercussive effects took place. That's all he says. I'm like, yeah, come on. Let, things can happen. Let, let's build on that. There was a spell that obfuscated Jack's house from view while at the same time just encapsulating it within a storm. I think that would be really cool. You know, for statting up, you could do the hulking thing that's supposed to look like a were-dog, which was actually a product of experimentation. And that's all I'll say to avoid giving away the entire story. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of experimentation by a couple yeah. people, yeah. <laughs> But a big part of the plot was trying to figure out where this ceremony was supposed to take place on October 31st, and that was Snuff's job. He had to account for the locations of everybody's residence, and it was supposed to be a central point. So you could actually create a a sort of adventure around that and essentially do a connect the dots to create the ley lines. Ooh, good idea. So I'm really kind of putting that together with your idea, David. And yeah, they could play the animals and try to put together the connect the dots because yeah. you know you've got one that the owl could get the aerial lay of the land and the rest of them have to go by foot they they don't actually have a map and you know you could actually i mean if if you were a really experimental judge you could possibly take if there's one or two wizards in the group and they both have familiars and you know for some reason you can't get everybody together why not run a little adventure with the you know the familiars Ooh, mm-hmm. oh yeah instead of always running the familiars as NPCs. Yeah, I think it would be kind of cool, which this, you know, this is basically what the story was. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Because really, the humans are far less important in the story until you get to the end. It's always, oh, well, yes, you serve so-and-so, and they're doing this, but we know that, you know, because the animals were always kind of, you know, they were the ones comparing notes, they were the ones talking to each other. So, um, in case our listeners can't tell, we kind of enjoyed this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you guys a definitely need to get this one. Seriously. So what about props? Well, I already mentioned this really took me back to all the classic horror movies. So I got to digging around and I found just about everyone I could remember on YouTube. So I think it would be oh. kind of cool. If you got a big screen in the background, you would have to have the volume up. Maybe play some of these old movies in the background while you're running your game. When I was reading this, I listened to two different Dracula soundtracks. Both, mm-hmm. I think, make great background music. They're moody 
dark, you know, got that mysterious vibe going. Uh, the Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, and then I picked up Dan Curtis's Dracula soundtrack from the 1973. I think it was a Hammer. Was it uh, Hammer? It might have been. I mean, Dan Curtis Jack did so Palance. many wonderful vampire things. <laughs> Jack Palance was playing Dracula, which I thought was kind of funny, but uh, I listened to those. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, I harp on Midnight Syndicate, their creations a lot, but they have a monsters of legend soundtrack and it's all these things are on spotify by the way if you guys are on there you can give them a quick uh, search and find them but the uh, monsters of legend is really good they're not overpowering they're just kind of ominous and there's some pretty cool sound effects that don't really come off cheesy it just to me it, it just builds a scene so i would recommend those for uh, music props i think you could definitely do something like balsa wood you could cut out a curved ritual dagger and uh, do some wood burning on it and engrave some sigils and then give it a paint and some dry brushing wrap the handle with some leather strapping and you'd have a really cool ritualistic dagger prop that you definitely wouldn't have to worry about winding up in somebody's kidney. Well, there's something to be said for that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for that. I did see that Tom Hanks movie. What, what kind of games did you play in, Dave? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Mazes and Monsters. Uh, Mazes and Monsters, that's right. Uh, oh, man. You could also do sachets of potpourri. You could use that to simulate some ritualistic casting, maybe some components that help build and stoke the fire. There was a scene in the book where each player would contribute to a fire, and I won't give out any more information on that, but everybody had a little thing they tossed in, and I think uh, Zelazny was a lot of Jen, a lot of times you pick up on colors in books, but this, you know, to me, it seemed like he was really good with sense. It seems like a, he was always kind of building a scene, and he always touched upon the sense of smell and, and some of that. Which makes so. sense to us telling it from a dog's point of view. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that is their world. Yeah, because the dogs are seeing in black and white, man. Yeah, so I think that. Oh, uh, man, no wonder. <laughs> How about you, Jen? Your mentioning the Dracula soundtracks reminded me that there are some great stage soundtracks that would be good for this purpose. Even just the orchestral part of, say, Phantom of the Opera. You know, nice, oh, yeah. dark, it sets a mood. I would love to get my hands on the stage production soundtrack for the Frankenstein that was done in London in 2012, where it was uh, oh, Johnny yes. Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch both playing both parts every other night. So they took oh, turns cool. in the role, and the music, especially just the five minutes of that, really just gave me goosebumps. So that could be great for any tense moment in a game. Also, besides reading this book, I dug into the audio version of it, and that scene where Snuff and Greymalk are kind of whisked through the dreamlands, the reader, it's almost a monotonous intoning of the names of places that they're passing through and, you know, the quick description of this is where so-and-so comes from and this is home to this monolith or statue or landmark. It's almost like someone has just flipped through Lovecraft's list of works and made a categorical list of places and... Yeah. You know, items of <laughs> note. So you could actually play this particular piece of that audio version in the book. 
repeating this passage over and over. For props, of course, my suggestion would be old books. Lots and lots of old books. Especially when he's going through a scene of destruction and there's this author laying on top of Dickens, on top of Bronte, and just everything all over the place. I found it really interesting that Snuff the Dog knew the books by name, by the names of the authors, which kind of tells us that's how Jack referred to them. Well, that and he's got that human-like intelligence he can read. I never really put that together. Yeah. Thanks for making me feel dumb, Bob. But he doesn't have <laughs> thumbs, so he can't doesn't turn I know, hands. right? <laughs> hey, he could still open doors, though. He figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree with Jen. I love the audiobook version of this story. Read by Roger Zelazny. It oh, really... Re- that was him? Yeah, that's Roger Zelazny reading the story, and it's Oh, that really was interesting. Good. And since the story is pretty well set in Victorian London, they never say it's Victorian London, but it is. It's London and the area outside the city. So for me, music from the old Hammer films is perfect, and you can go online and find the soundtracks for, like, Taste the Blood of Dracula, Twins of Evil, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Dracula, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and other 70s horror film soundtracks, a lot of them try to evoke that same period feel. There's Jess Franco's Dracula. The movie itself, uh, despite having Christopher Lee, is really, really bad. <laughs> But the music is really, really good. Umberto Lenzi's Spasmo. It has a great soundtrack, and that's by Ennio Morricone. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with a Morricone soundtrack. So those are absolutely fantastic and uh, would be good for the background. And thinking of David's idea of sachets of potpourri and things of that nature, you know, if you're playing this or something based on this in October and it's kind of cool and you have a little fire going in the fireplace, they actually make powders, they're essentially heavy salts, that are meant to be sprinkled onto burning logs and things of that nature, and they change the color of fire. And so you can easily, like, make little sachets with potpourri with a little bit of that in there, and then have each player toss one deep into the fireplace. Don't don't go short, (laughs) because, you know, that could be bad. But toss it deep back into the fire, and then all of a sudden you've got green shooting up out of the fire, or red shooting up out of the fire. Or if you're reading it to your kids, you could convince them that you actually do have sorcerer's powers and <laughs> what do you mean convince them what if you just do okay you're making me wish we had use for a fireplace these days yeah well so so that would be that'd be along the lines of things you could do so dcc inspirations and reskins Oh, gotta say, right off the bat, the minute I read that Quicklime the snake lived inside his master's midsection, the hollow men from the core book. Oh my god, yes. The hollow men have been some of my favorite recurring monsters in my personal campaign, and the fact that they're not entirely original, I was both happy and sad to read that but also a little vindicated. Well, and I love that Rastoff was a heavy drinker, and then Quicklime had that hangover and just wanted to die. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> kind of explains why uh, things in the Hollow Men are so pissed off. For the scenes where they're, like, trying to find the Count, there's catacombs or rows of coffins that usually poor Quicklime got shoved into. But that really brought to mind a scene from the 13th Skull, as well as from last year's Halloween special, They Served Brandolin Red. Oh yeah. yeah. And again with Brandolin, you're kind of creating and following the lines between landmarks and trying to 
figure out the lay of the land for this little area. You've got that thing in the basement, which is, they tell you right off in the beginning, so I'm not giving too much away. It's a creature stuck inside a summoning circle. And, well, there's a scene like that that we've gone over in many a playtest of uh, Harley Stroh's Music of the Spheres, which I know isn't out yet, but I've run the scene so many times I I feel like it is, so... And what's the... Isn't that the Music of the Spheres is Chaos? What uh, is it? It, in parentheses, yes, is Chaos, yes. The other one on my brief laundry list tonight is uh, Prince Charming Reanimator. You know, not only does it have the heavy Lovecraftian overtones, but you've also got the references to the well-known characters of lore, but they're veiled a little bit. They're not described by name, just like they don't tell you right out in this book that it is Jack the Ripper or Sherlock Holmes. Right. Uh, so I, I kind of appreciated that similarity. And I'm avoiding the obvious, so I'll let you give it to him, Bob. Well, since the obvious was my very first thought, Transylvania Adventures. I mean, <laughs> there you this go. whole story has <laughs> hammer horror just stamped all over it. Yeah. And it's got yeah. some moments that are just delightfully dark and chilling. I don't think the story needs any changes at all to fit into a Transylvania Adventures campaign. You just need a bit of writing and some stats and it's good to go as is. Pretty much. Another one that sprang to mind was the jeweler that dealt in Stardust. That whole vibe oh. of essentially searching someone's house after they're dead and you don't really know what's there. There's a couple moments oh. like that in this story, and that really made me think of that adventure. Nice. Elzamon and the blood-drinking box kind of springs to mind when I was thinking of the creature <laughs> in the trunk. <laughs> there you go, Terry. <laughs> yeah. And I started thinking about it, because if you wanted to, you could run an adventure or a set of adventures to build this up and assign all of your players, whether or not they're an opener or a closer, and tell them they've got to keep it secret or it spoils the whole thing. You know, this is on you guys if this works. And yeah. then, much like Intrigue at the Court of Chaos, you can pretty much end an adventure with PvP action <laughs> as, as they try to open or close the gates. Oh, yes, thank you. I'm a dork. Creature locked in cabinet. Uh, duh. The chain coffin. Ooh. Yeah. Complete with questions of loyalty and alignment. This one was kind of tough for me. I don't know. I think I was trying to actually come up with an adventure that I had read that would fit with this really well, as opposed to just bits and pieces of encounters. So it was, uh, I don't know. I just had a, a really hard time coming up with something. I definitely thought along the same lines with Bob of Transylvania Adventures. I mean, it's just, like you said, Bob, I mean, it's just a perfect adventure. All you need to do is stat it up and it would run fine. <laughs> um, there's a lot of adventures, I think, that if you're wanting to do some Halloween themes with, there's a lot of stuff out there. But kind of tying into the book, I don't know, for some reason the Arwitch Grinder came to mind. I believe that's, I'm not sure which issue of Crawl that's in. That's been out a while, maybe? Yeah, I want to yeah. say seven. Yeah. Seven or um, eight. Shoot. Even though it's a DCC adventure, to me it didn't have a real fantasy feel to it. So I think that if you wanted to run an adventure, I don't know. Because obviously the book we're covering, I don't think that it fits the fantasy genre. So for some reason, the Arwitch Grinder was coming to mind. And I think it could be used in any genre where there's an element of hard desired Daniel Bishop, uh, of course, we mentioned him with uh, Prince Charming the Reanimator. We <laughs> we throw his name in the hat, I think, it seems like, every other episode. But he outdid himself on the encounters. I think they're all just creepy backwoods inbred family that worship a god of cannibalism. And, you know, the, the god that they worship kind of reminded me a little bit of some of the 
descriptives given in the uh, Selassny novel. Yeah, what's well, not to love there? Come on. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the Arwitch Grinder is also a little bit more investigation-based. It's yeah. not just go in and hack and slash. So, yeah, it, that's a good fit. And another one that just came out recently that I could see reskinning this story and using is the Nowhere City Nights setting from Julian Oh, Burke. yeah. Oh. It's more of a modern noir horror setting, but you could easily fit a yeah. story like this into that. Hey, and, and there you have it. DCC stuff that Bob has read that I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Guess I won't be playing that anytime soon. <laughs> you can run it. That'd be cool. Yeah, that is true. Hey, there's a feather in your cap. So that brings us to our DCC feature for the show, and it's going to be The Sinister Sutures of the Semptress by Michael Curtis. And mm. it is this year's official DCC RPG Halloween release from Goodman Games. Since it is a brand spanking new release, we don't want to give too much away. So oh, man. Uh, I've got quite a list of, <laughs> of similarities between this book that we just read and this beautifully gory, grotesque thing that Michael put out. So we could start with the pitch on the back cover. Mother was wrong. There are monsters in the closet. Terror seeks out the adventurers in the safety of their own homes, drawing them into a tailored web of vengeance long deferred. Torn from their beds, the PCs find themselves trapped in the house of tattered remnants, the home and prison of an eldritch entity known only as the Semptress. The adventurers must overcome patchwork horrors, unearthly craftsmen, and even the unraveling of their own realities if they hope to defeat the Semptress in her lair and escape the house. Or will they be unmade by the Semptress's evil? Yeah. So, again, gruesome, horrible, horribly gruesome. And almost matter-of-fact, like the way Jack's missions were detailed by Snuff. Yeah, He was required to get this item from this woman with red hair on the day she died. So uh, he killed her, took it, he he's got it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just looking at the cover. The creature on the cover. Dear God, Doug Kovacs, what have you done? <laughs> it is magnificently... That's awesome. I, I, I... It is absolutely... <laughs> nightmarish. It is yeah. probably one of the darkest, creepiest things I've seen on a Goodman Games cover ever, and that is high praise. It, yeah. It, it's, it's awesome. It could be something that was passed in the Dreamlands, or summoned in the final stage of the game, or even formed by the players during a, a certain ceremony. As there's a scene where some faces and forms shift from player to companion and so forth. Well, and this adventure is probably, in my opinion, it's not even probably, in my opinion, it is. I think this is the best thing Michael Curtis has ever written. Wow, is, you hear that, Mike? <laughs> it is so evocative. It is so creepy from the way the maps kind of twist and turn with non-Euclidean geometry. Eh, there's a little bit of that. The threat of being unmade or unraveled and, well, and, and just... And, and even that, it won't necessarily kill you. It could be more like when the squirrel gets his shadow back. Yeah, there's just, which is yeah, just there's, as chilling. There's just so much darkness that every single language choice, every single bit of a turn of phrase and implied inflection in this adventure 
is perfectly tuned to put your nerves on yep. edge. I mean, this, this oh, really yeah. is, it's, it's the perfect Halloween episode. I have to agree with you. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is maybe, if not my favorite, it's in my top three. This is one of the... Wow. Uh, and I didn't, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, you know, you read the DC's Adventures and they're all great, but you get used to it. But this one, it's just like, I can't really, I can tell you this, guys, purchase this adventure as soon as you can. I don't run, most of the time now when we go to cons, I'm running, you know, my own stuff. But this is an adventure I will be running because it is, <laughs> like Bob said, it puts the C in creepy. And <laughs> it's, the, 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 the encounters are just off the wall insane and grotesque and there's some good humor to it but michael curtis has i think raised the bar with this one this is i think the perfect midnight con game it's exactly oh okay i got chills because that really unnerves me um (laughs) (laughs) so the semstress herself is described as eldritch so i'm thinking that from that to tie her into our book that freeing her could make you an opener mm-hmm. yeah possibly yeah let's see in this place the things in mirrors might be a little more entertaining some possible time distortion like snuff experienced and you know when you meet a couple of the npcs in here you definitely need to decide right off the bat if you're going to be polite like snuff or on the offensive like the vicar you know are you an opener or a closer are you willing to switch sides? Yeah, there's a lot of potential with this adventure, and especially if the judge running it has read A Night in the Lonesome October, there's so much potential for absolute mayhem to rain down upon your players and if they, won't, they don't take... They won't even see it coming. Well, if they don't <laughs> take their roles in this adventure seriously. Yeah. There's adventures where you can just kind of go through and you can just sort of murder hobo your way out of things. That, and, that's true, And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. that. That can be a lot of fun. But every once in a while, you run into something that you really have to... You've got to cool off and think about things. <laughs> you know, the Grimtooth's Museum is an adventure where you've just got to sit and you've got to think about things. And you've got to progress with care. And here, there are literal fates worse than death for your characters on the oh, line yeah. in this adventure. And we're not just talking the picture on the cover. <laughs> and we're not just <laughs> talking about putting the character yeah. sheet in a shredder. I mean, there's... Uh, yeah. There is stuff in there that, uh, reading reading through it, I, as a judge, I winced. And I was like, that is some scary <laughs> stuff to lay down on your players. Um, this, this is an adventure with consequences for your campaign, and you can fit it in anywhere. And, you know, you could do it as a one-shot. Keep in mind, it's a level six adventure, which I think is the second highest for all of the official Goodman releases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Colossus Arise was for 8th, which is just insane. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you figure level 6, they're already fairly epic and fairly powerful, and you could try to run this as part of a campaign for some lower levels, and depending on how they comport themselves, the players could still get out alive possible another option would be to 
hint at this adventure throughout your campaign as it's building up. You know, you can drop just little things here or there that don't give any real information, just little snippets and conversations they might hear so that when they get to this point and when they finally are engaged in the adventure, the players are going to start thinking, wait, Semptress, we've heard that before. Where have we heard that? Yeah. And give them those little pieces. If you're going to run this not as a one-shot, but put it into a campaign, you can really build to this. And the opening portion of this adventure doesn't have to happen all at once. It's something that might take, without giving anything away, might take more than one or two attempts. True. So, I mean, this, but yeah, you could drop this into a campaign anywhere. It doesn't matter where the players are or where the the characters are. You could just, you could hit them with this at any time. Or that... That first scene could even happen to an NPC that they are sent to rescue. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at building up a campaign towards them actually being at the crux of it, throw in some family lineage. Yeah, and you could even, it's a foreshadowing kind of thing, if you start them out at first or second level, you could just throw in just a random encounter where they're talking to some of their kinfolk, and and they're, they're talking about some of the things that they did, and then, you know, five levels later, you... Oh, wait a minute. This is what Uncle Bob was talking about. You know it would be perfect, and the adventure isn't old enough for people to have started with it and have worked their way up to be high enough to run through this adventure, but if you're running this with characters that started with They Serve Brandel and Red, where you've got all that that family drama and backstory between the families and then to this... Oh, yeah. Definitely. Bride of the Black Mance as well has got a lot of uh, family intrigue. Yeah? That would be really interesting to see how you escape from that and then keep moving on. But yeah, anything like a family heirloom, like, oh, that's the mirror my mother used to have. Or, oh, look, it's the grandfather clock that was over at my cousin's house. All of the little sights or or even, mommy, there were monsters in the closet. So, (laughs) oh, look, your favorite toy. And if you don't like your group, this is a perfect opportunity for a TPK. I'm going to say that. Because oh, when, when you yeah. read some of the encounters, some of the some of the DCC adventures, I look at them and I'm like, you know, their stats to me, maybe they're a little too low. Maybe they don't have enough hit points. And so there were a few encounters when I started reading this and I was like, ah. But then I was like, oh. And then the next page, ugh. And then by the end I was like, Whoa, this is going to be pretty hard for some of these guys to get out of. I mean, it- yeah, but it's one of those things where having played a character that got up to six level before I retired him, if we'd had an entire party, I mean, God, the, the amount of damage a six level character can do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, remember, you, they you get two attacks at fifth. That can really hit on par. Yeah. Was it fifth or sixth that you get two attacks at? I think fifth. So you've got sixth level characters here, and if you've got a, a fully mixed party, that means you've got people who can cast more than once a round. Well, and you, you start getting, you know, like warriors with a D7 deed die that can do ridiculous things. Multiple deed dies, yeah. It gets ugly, and the thing is, this adventure will not be a cakewalk for them. They're going to have to work for it and earn it. And Which is a, a nice change, thing. yeah. Seriously, people, if you don't already have this adventure... <laughs> <laughs> Just run out and get it now. Remember, these holiday releases tend to be kind of limited anyway. And, you know, they can go away. Like, Brandlin Red is currently sold out. Sure, it'll probably eventually be reprinted. But if you want to buy it right now, it's PDF or nothing. If mm-hmm. you want this adventure, go out and get it. 
and you want this adventure. Yes, please. <laughs> it is digest size, like most of the special holiday issues have been coming out, but lots of good gnarly stuff in there. Can we go back to talking about the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, how about we talk about the road crew? All right, it's all you. There's definitely some great road crew and convention shoutouts, but actually we'll start, speaking of adventures, the Kickstarter for Thorin Thompson's Sky of Crimson Flame runs through October 19th. It's already reached its funding goal. It's working <laughs> towards more stretch goals. There's awesome. already going to be a custom designed zero level character sheet for it hmm. and he's looking to explore further areas around the main adventure is it a it's funnel then really nice pardon is it a funnel then it's a zero level adventure okay i don't remember if it's specifically that's true zero stated does not as out. a funnel yeah. but yes gotcha convention wise of course november brings gamehole con in madison wisconsin Yay! with brendan lasalle jim wampler reed sanfilippo julian Burnick, Doug Kovac, Michael Austin, and Forrest Guy, And the three of us will be there. Yeah. Hey, hey, we're not we're not running Jason stuff though, Hobbs. sorry. Hobbs oh, will is, be there as well. It's not Ooh, is Hobbs about. running anything? I believe he's gonna be doing some of that black powder black magic, if I'm not mistaken. Oh that's nice. Sweet. Uh, November also brings us Yukon in Ypsilanti, Michigan, with again, Brendan LaSalle. That guy gets around. <laughs> Laura Rose Williams, Dan Dom, Clayton Williams, Scott Kellogg, and Adam Miskevich is running both DCC and MCC at UConn. And I believe Event Reg for UConn runs through October 30th. Yeah. Ben Wilson is running a 12-week road crew campaign at the Roleplay Haven RPG Club across the pond over in the UK. Cool. The campaign is the Mysterious Cities of Uzara. The game's full, but it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun so i've got to plug that spectators yeah. yeah tell us how it goes jeff goad is continuing the brooklyn dcc goodness they just ran null singularity and elzaman and the blood drinking box Wee. and if you missed out on those remember the dcc book club he runs is going to be meeting on october 9th to discuss the coming of conan the sumerian by robert e howard mass of lankmar is being run as part of the asheville Scarefest in montreat north carolina on october 20th First, wait, I'm sorry, Montreat, North Carolina. Did I get that closer, David? <laughs> On October 21st, I think I've seen a couple other DCC events have popped up for Scarefest, so I think oh, there's cool. like two or three now. Yeah, I think Arwich Grinder may be on the list, if I'm not mistaken. Quite possibly. There's going to be a Carnival of the Damned tournament at Dungeon Games in Estero, Florida on Saturday, October 29th. Jen and I are going to be running that, so you can come (laughs) compete for uh, glory and prizes. And as an additional note, Dungeon Games is currently the only store in the area to have DCC RPG dice in stock. So that's always a plus. Yeah, we're talking the tubes, guys. Yeah, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, We're really looking forward to ruining everyone's imagery of David's game. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're talking about, okay, we'll have clowns everywhere. And the owner's (laughs) wife is just in tears. Yeah, it's going to be great. The owner's wife is afraid of clowns. Congrats to Giogo Noguera on the release of, well, I'm going to butcher this, Caviera Villa, I think? Caviera Villa. (laughs) There we go which we believe is the first international DCC RPG zine. Whee! So Can't wait to get a copy of that. Yeah, they just released issue zero. I so. don't know if I can read it, but I need it anyway. <laughs> oh, I know. Just saying. Got to, got to have it. <laughs> 
But I think it's it's really great, and also he's been such a great international ambassador for the game. Oh yeah, and it's really wonderful to see. I mean, like the Dark Eye is the German fantasy role playing game. It got a quick shout out during Punjar 50K at Gen Con this year. But over here in the states, we don't really see it, and so I always kind of think of American based games possibly having the same sort of reception overseas. And so seeing this and seeing you know DCC over in the UK and in Brazil. It's it's really cool. Yeah, we yeah. just have a very cool community. It's a very large family. We've got Indeed. at least two people I can think of off top of my head in Japan running it. What? Well, Claytonian's over yeah, in Japan. Claytonian JP. and Bob, your friend Stephen from. Oh, yeah, uh, from, Caesars. from the Magical Empire, yes. So, David, why don't you take us out? We'd love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and reading. So, submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Keep an eye out for our future topics and we can include your material in the show companion when we put those out. We hope we've inspired you guys. I've definitely enjoyed this show. Uh, can't recommend the book or the adventure we covered enough so thanks for listening and have a great halloween yeah (laughs) thanks guys be inspired you have been listening to the sanctum Sacorum podcast Join us again next time when we gather to review the works of Abraham Merritt with The People of the Pit. The Sanctum Sacorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2016. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level dark elf barbarian assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the dark master. Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey, guys. Can I play? Sure. Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool. I summoned a demon horde. Welcome to Glowburn, a podcast dedicated to the mutant crawl classics roleplay game. Podcast.glowburn.org. Defense at 340.